Welcome to the Luminate Collective podcast brought to you by AAB Consulting and I'm your host Shan Parker. In this series we capture candid conversations on life, change, leadership and the world of business. Beyond their titles our guests share their life stories discussing the personal and vulnerable experiences that have contributed to their success. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Caroline Lamb, Chief Executive of NHS Scotland and Director General of Health and Social Care Directorates. Caroline's journey is a testament to leadership in the face of change, so stay tuned to find out more. Caroline, thank you so much for sitting down with us today for a wee chat. We're really excited to get into all this amazing stuff that you've done and what you do now. Um, We want to start off, though, by prompting you a wee bit to think about your bookmark moment. And the time in your life, you maybe had options. You didn't know exactly what to choose at the time. You could have gone down one path, but you chose to go down another. And that's ultimately led you to where you are now. Can you pinpoint that moment and and talk us through it? Tell us a bit about it. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, it's lovely to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Um, I suppose my that that sort of, you know, crossroads moment for me was probably way back, way back when I was um, about to graduate from university. I was in my final year and I was sort of thinking, you know, that that dawning realisation that actually the real world's coming at you. Um, plus the fact that I knew I had to get a job because my bank manager was basically going to take away my card. Um, it was just a cash point card in those days. Um, and uh, I was I was pretty clear that I was interested in working in the not-for-profit sector. But I was also, I suppose, realistic enough to understand that I didn't really have any skills to offer. Um, so I was hanging around a bit in the university careers um room library. It wasn't a very big library. And realised that a lot of the big accountancy firms were recruiting. And I had never, ever thought about accountancy. And even then, I don't think I was thinking of accountancy as a career. Apologies. It's a great career. But but actually, for me, it was about, oh, you know, I could train, I could learn a skill and that would make me a bit more marketable and maybe give me a bit more leeway to choose the sort of area that I want to work in. Um, so I... I basically picked a few application forms up, filled them in, um, qualified as a chartered accountant, got an opportunity to work in a whole range of different um, industries, manufacturing, banking, but also charitable, not-for-profit sector. And that confirmed in me what I really wanted to do. And and I think gave me the opportunity then to start applying for jobs, knowing that I had um, something good to, to, to offer, as well as still a lot to learn. Thinking back to that sort of moment when you were almost had a choice of do I go down this route or go down the other route? I'm finishing university. Where am I at? Looking back now, is there anything that you would say to your younger self? There's probably loads of worries that you had, loads of fears, but also quite a lot of excitement. Is there anything thinking back that you would say, look, you got this? How how would you talk to yourself however many years ago? Yeah, I think so. I think, the, the, you know, I mean, I was not your archetypal accountant. I didn't didn't study accountancy at university. Um, And I was, you know, been heavily involved in student politics. I was a bit of a punk. Uh, I actually still had my hair shaved up the side of my head. Uh, And so I was growing it long on top. So it would cover it up to go in for my my interviews. And I think actually a lot of my friends were like, you're going to do what? Um, uh, But stick with your instincts, stick with your instincts and just just go for something that you think is going to help you to get where you, where you want to be. We 
want to talk a bit about how you got to where you are now. You've had a bunch of different careers, yeah. jobs, roles. Um, talk us through your career to date and kind of how it led to the position that you you have now. Yeah, okay. So, so as I've said, I qualified as a chartered accountant. Um, I then went, my first job as was, was as a director of finance in, in a small housing association. So I, I worked in housing, uh, learning a lot about running a department, uh, about funding and about some of the, some of the issues around social housing. Um, from there, I moved into education. So I went and worked uh, for the University of Abertay in Dundee. Uh, and again, that was that was great in terms of learning around uh, how higher education funding works. But also the university had a huge mission as a, a wider access institution. And at, at, at the back of my head, I'd always quite hankered after working in health. Um, I mean, the NHS is the biggest public service. It's so important to all of us. And I'd always thought mm, that would be a really good place to work. Uh, and then I saw a job come up for NHS Education for Scotland, um, who are the, the national board responsible for education and training. And I thought, well, you know, I've got good experience in education. So there's some of that's probably transferable. Uh, so I went, I went to went to NAIRS, as they're called. Um, uh, from there, I then got the opportunity to be interim chief exec for a while and then was successful in getting the substantive prep post. So I was I was at NAIRS enjoying life, uh, enjoying the role as chief executive, enjoying working with the other chief execs across our NHS boards. Um, and learning about the relationship between health boards and, and Scottish government as well. Uh, and then um, my old boss, Malcolm Wright, who had was by then uh, in the job that I'm in now, Director General and Chief Executive of NHS Scotland, uh, approached me with um, what I used to call, as he used to, used to come, even when I worked from him, here's a development opportunity for you, Caroline. And he he basically said to me, you've been at NES a while, maybe you should try something different. And he asked me if I'd be interested in moving into Scottish Government on a secondment uh, to be Director of Digital Transformation and um, Service Engagement. Now, I was, I was really interested in the digital aspects of that. Whilst I was at NES, we'd done huge amounts of work around digital transformation, adoption of cloud, agile development methodologies, all of that, really exciting stuff. So um, I thought it would be a great opportunity. That was December 2019. So I went into Scottish Government and within two months we were um, beginning to realise just what a big thing COVID was going to be for us. Uh, and from, oh, I suppose, early mid-March onwards, it was very much a case of everybody just needed to do the things, pivot towards doing the things that were most important. So in my digital role, we did a lot of work around um, rapidly rolling out NHS Near Me to enable um, video consultations. It's a really, really critical part of the response when when we didn't want people travelling and we didn't want people sitting in GP surgeries. Uh, but um, there were other things that were really important as well. So from about mid-March 2020, I took uh, leadership of our work to scale up our um, ICU capacity, working with a brilliant team um, for, of clinicians, uh, procurement experts from National Service Scotland, um, 
civil servants, uh, basically trying to make sure that we we had a pipeline of orders for new um, new ventilators and all the associated equipment that goes with it. There was the UK stockpile being developed, so we were working with colleagues from across the UK uh, and just really trying to make sure that we were able to increase our uh, intensive care capacity to deal with what was coming at us, particularly looking at what was happening in Italy and, and other European countries at that time. So that was pretty full on. Um, uh, I suppose that was that was March, April, March and April, yeah, in 2020. And by the time we got to the end of April, we'd managed to triple our ICU capacity. And um, whilst it was still, you know, still busy and we were still concerned and keeping a like, daily eye on occupancy levels, the, the pressure had eased off that work slightly. Um, and uh, partly because of the national lockdown which had you know had an impact on 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 the transmission of covid but um we were looking at sort of what what was needed to start to release the lockdown and and part of that was we needed um large scale population level contact tracing so i was asked to lead a team setting that up uh, the Scottish Government uh, launched our test and protect strategy on i think it was the 5th of may 2020 and we the, the First Minister was very clear that we had to implement a contact tracing system um, linked to our testing, linked to all the support for self-isolation by the end of May. Um, so it was a sort of four-week programme, really, of, of getting that up and running. And, and we, we went live at the end of May. It was we had a pretty basic contact tracing system at that time, but also the impact of lockdown meant that we were actually dealing with a a relatively low number of cases so it was it was a good environment to test a new system in uh, and then we and, and at, the, at the same time in parallel we were developing much more um, comprehensive technology and capacity setting up a national contact tracing centre so so that was um, yeah May June July uh, and then August I shifted to working on the flu and COVID vaccination programme um, the the flu was a more or less regular seasonal flu vaccination program, but we were very keen to get um, uh, rates of of participation in the program up as high as possible, so that we we could try and make sure that the health service wasn't dealing with a double whammy of COVID and and flu through the winter period. And at the same time, I think um, you know, we were beginning to believe that we might have a COVID vaccine. And clearly, if we were going to get a vaccine, we needed to make sure that we were able to get that vaccine into people's arms as quickly and as effectively as possible. And the infrastructure, if I'm honest, for the vaccination programmes was not that great. Um, it was the, the, the flu vaccination programme and others had obviously been running for years. But um, in quite a sort of sleepy mode um, and uh, quickly became clear that wasn't going to work. So there was no doubt that ministers were not going to be happy to wait a week or 10 days to know how many people had been vaccinated on a particular day. We were going to need daily information. So we needed, again, new systems to record vaccination. We needed clinical teams working on all the advice and guidance. We needed to train more vaccinators. We needed to identify locations. So, again, you know, working with utterly brilliant teams uh, across across NHS Scotland in the civil service and also um, very much working with local government partners. So they'd been important to us in terms of the, the support for isolation and it's part of Test and Protect. 
equally important in relation to identifying venues, helping to support um, the, the, the HR required to actually set up vaccination programmes, transport vaccine around the country. Incredibly complex programme. But again, you look back and you think, my goodness, that that that, that was delivered in such a the first vaccinations went into people's arms about the 8th of December. And what a difference that made, what a difference that made to, to everybody. And then during that period, so during the autumn, um, the Scottish government advertised for um, a new DG and chief executive. And I think at that point I thought, well, do you know what? Why not? <laughs> Why not? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I am used to living at this yeah. this sort of pace. I'm used to working under this sort of intensity. So I'll throw my hat in the ring and mm. the rest, as they say, is history. There's so much in there, Caroline, so much. you're mentioning the sort of first few months of COVID and I remember sitting at home with my mum and dad and we're like you know okay a couple of weeks off work great you know let's see what happens I think we all forget that meanwhile you and all the teams around you are for want of a better word scrambling to try and pull something together here that's gonna actually make a difference can't even imagine how intense that must have been um and just listening to you explain it all there, I feel like I've got a little bit of a glimpse into really what it was like day to day, but there's probably so much more underneath that, that unless you were actually in it, you will never fully, really understand. Um, how how did you manage to cope with all of the things getting thrown at you all of the time, every day, something was new, there was changes happening left, right and centre, and it was kind of landing on your desk on the daily. How How did you cope with managing all of that and kind of getting a resolution quickly? So I suppose the first thing is that I, I wasn't alone. Far from being alone, you know, there was there was a a, 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 a team um, within DG Health and Social Care at Scottish Government, uh, clinicians, um, civil servants, people who are absolutely brilliant at writing advice for ministers, uh, and and those of us who've got a background in in NHS services and and sort of understand those links into delivery as well. And everybody was um, working just extraordinarily hard. Uh, we had we had the army in at the beginning of the pandemic as well, giving us advice and supporting us around logistics and some of our, you know, they are very used to managing crisis situations, and they they were they were really helpful. Um, so so hugely supportive teams. I think you know everybody was in the same boat. We were all working very long hours under a lot of pressure, but also I suppose acutely conscious that we were providing advice and support to ministers who really wanted to do the best thing and make the best decisions for for Scotland. Uh, and then again. Um, health board staff across our health and social care services who were, again, you know, working really hard, putting themselves on the front line, putting themselves and, and their families at risk in terms of making sure that we were able to keep services open for, for the people who needed them. So it was a huge collective effort and local authority colleagues as well and the third sector were brilliant in terms of supporting people who were shielding, supporting people, you know, who couldn't get out to, to, get, to get food parcels or whatever it is. So it felt very much much like it was a it was a massively supportive collective effort and you know yeah it was tough it was it was it was long hours um and there was there was a, a lot to do and it did feel a little bit sometimes i've described it as sometimes as being a bit like being in a tumble dryer that you you know you sort of being bounced from one thing to the other because 
We were learning all the time. We were collecting data. Our, our clinicians, our scientists, our uh, analysts were assessing that. And we were using that to try and, um, and, and, and lots of work with, with counterparts across the UK as well. So we were learning all the time about the vaccine, about the, sorry, the virus, about uh, how it behaved um, and therefore needing to sort of adjust our response all the time. Um, so, yeah, unprecedented circumstances, I'd say, um, but a real sort of spirit around uh, getting on and, and, and getting things done. And to be honest with you as well, maybe helped by the fact that there wasn't anything else to do, was there? I mean, you described sitting at home with your, with your parents. I think one of the things that was probably difficult for my family was was that me finding the time to to phone them to tell them what was going on and to make sure that they didn't feel sort of completely caught up thinking particularly my parents in Yorkshire um but yeah there wasn't there wasn't much else to do was there during that period <laughs> You mentioned a bit about uh, development opportunity. Did you say Martin? <laughs> Mike, um, sorry, Malcolm, Malcolm Wright. Malcolm, yeah. Malcolm Wright. So Malcolm offered you this development opportunity at the time, right? And I'm just trying to think for those of us listening and wanting to know a bit more about taking that sort of leap of faith, I guess, maybe a step up in a career. It gets framed as something, it might be something entirely different. <laughs> um, but regardless, you, you again are putting yourself in a situation where you don't necessarily know what the outcome is going to be. Where does that sort of ambition, vigour, kind of trust, I suppose, come come from? You seem like that type of person. Tell me a bit more about that. Yeah, I, so so um, I think that, I mean, you're right. In many ways, I was, I was a chief executive. I was doing a job that I was very comfortable with, um, not without its challenges, but I was working with a team that I knew that I trusted, good organisation, high performance. Um, so moving into Scottish government was I, I, very much a sideways move. Um, however, I suppose for me, it was uh, an opportunity to work inside government to really understand how government worked, to get that exposure to ministers and politicians and to just get a much deeper understanding of how the process works. And, and I, it's one of the things that I say to colleagues both inside government and outside government now, it is almost impossible, I think, to um, imagine what it is like unless you've actually spent a bit of time doing it um, because whatever you think it's like is not how it turns out being. Now, obviously, I went into government in very... Um, unusual circumstances uh with a but but in any in many ways and you know no, nobody could have predicted that i certainly didn't predict it but in many ways that accelerated the learning curve because everything just became um much faster than it than it would than it would normally be exposure to ministers was was much more intense and focused than than it might have been in a more sort of business as, as usual period so I, I guess I I thought it would be an opportunity. Uh, originally, I think it was supposed to be for, for nine months and then I would go back into my chief exec role, but with a deeper understanding of how things worked. Um, and maybe, you know, at, at that point, I would have thought about, well, where I wanted my career to go as as it was. Well, you know, events happened and, and, and here we are. What's next? Are we still are we sitting tight for the mo for the moment? I feel like I have to ask the question. Like you've done so many things up till now and been in a really unusual environment, particularly for the last few years. Is this is this giving you everything you need? Are you fulfilled? Is there more? 
I think that so 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 where I am at the moment, this is a this is a a, a high pressure job, mm-hmm. and I and I am conscious that there is probably only so long, and I'm counting that in years rather than months. That I, in in terms of how long I want to continue working at this sort of pace and and level of intensity and pressure, that you know, this is a job that it's very hard to switch off from. Um, it's very hard to you know just be completely um, unobtainable because the stuff happens and things come out of left field. I do think though, so um, coming out of the pandemic has been really tough. Uh, our health and social care services are under more pressure than they've ever been under before. We're dealing with a backlog, um, a not insignificant backlog. Um, and also there's, you know, there's pressures coming down the road at us around demographics and the burden of disease. Um, equally, I think that there are opportunities for us in all of that. And uh, for me, I think that there's an opportunity for us to make the case around focusing on population health because um, the, you know, the health service um, is a bit like a repair shop uh, and we can't just keep on being a bigger and bigger repair shop that's working faster and faster and faster to try and keep everything going. There's some, we need to start thinking about how we tackle some of the upstream issues around poor population health, around health inequalities. And a lot of those are driven by factors that are out with the control of health and social care in Scottish government. That's about poverty, it's about poor housing, it's about educational attainment and prospects. Um, and um, things that the Scottish government are doing, like the child poverty p- payment, for example, are absolutely aimed at starting to address some of those those core inequalities and some of the issues that actually mean that people have poorer outcomes um, in life and in health as well. So I think there's a real opportunity to look there in terms of um, shifting the balance towards more upstream preventative uh, approaches. There's also huge opportunities. I mean, again, you know, it's the system is under huge pressure and it is easy. It would be easy to think that it's it's very hard for us to get out of where we are at the moment, and it and it is hard, but there are lots of opportunities as well around innovation, around digital, um, around you know opportunities to modernise the way in which we do things in health and social care. I'm not getting away from any of the challenges, but I do think that for me, but also as a system as a whole, we need to be able to lift our heads up a little bit and think about the future because there is a future and it's going to be different from the, the the reality that we're living in at the moment. It's interesting I sometimes think you know folk are a bit younger in their 20s maybe still at school and are thinking where do I want to go what career path do I want to go down and you said it before unless you're actually in it there's only so much you can really understand about the environment that you work in um Is there anything you would like to say to perhaps the younger generation in terms of those newer opportunities? So further down the road, you talk about digitising different elements of the service. You talk about future opportunities. Almost how would you sell the NHS to somebody that's considering a career in, in that field? So at the heart, the NHS and our social care system are are all about people and they're all about providing compassionate, careful care. Uh, uh, But 
Um, we need to do that in a way that harnesses the very best of technological developments. And that means that there are lots of roles across the NHS. So I think people quite often think about working in the NHS as being around, being a doctor or a nurse classically. But actually, we have lots of jobs in digital helping us to build the technology that will enable people to manage their own health, um, you know, using their phone in the way that we do manage our own banking and other things like that. Um, there are roles around engineering. There are roles around medical physics. There are, there are roles in some of those really innovative, cutting edge medical um, developments that I think you know are really appealing. But at the end of the day, I think you know what sells it to me, and what's always sold it to me, is that actually fundamentally this is about making a positive difference to people's lives. You can you can really make a difference to people's experience, to people's health, and therefore to their their, their life outcomes as well. So cool. You're making me rethink my uh, <laughs> Sorry, everybody else. That's okay. That's all good. We like that. <laughs> really cool. Um, so we've talked a bit about COVID and sort of how you handled that whole piece. Um, I want to learn a bit more about the team that were around you. You talk about the fact that you had loads of different people supporting from different areas. How did you work with them to motivate them to make them understand how important this whole thing was? I'd like to assume they knew, but we none of us knew how long this was going to go on for. So when you were having those early days conversations, what sort of language or tools or things did you use to to motivate that team? So so I don't I don't think that motivation was an issue. In the early days, in the early days, this was we were in a, a crisis. We were in a public health crisis, um, and whether you you were coming at this from the background of a clinician providing that clinical advice, from somebody with with delivery experience who can who can advise on the best ways to get policy delivered, um, or from you know, a civil service perspective in terms of what ministers need to know in order to make make the best possible decisions, don't think it mattered. It was um, people were, COVID was the enemy and we were all about trying to defeat the enemy. And in, in many ways that was quite simple because life became a bit simpler because we were all focused on on one thing. And therefore in, in relation to those sort of wider um, working relationships and the wider teams, it, it, organizational boundaries didn't matter any longer. It, it wasn't about who did what. It was about getting things done. Um, and everybody was, was I think, really just keen to see that they could, whatever experience, expertise, capacity they could harness could be brought together for, 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 to, to focus on the one thing. And I, I think you're probably right. You know, at the beginning, um, we probably thought, well, you know, this will last, you know, weeks, maybe months, and then we'll be back to, to normal. And that wasn't the case. And so I think it became, um, it, it became not hard, but it became uh, the, the, the motivation and keeping people going was more about making sure that people got a break and that they were able to re-energise themselves, that they were able to get some downtime because you know, nobody can work flat out 24-7 for, for months on end. Um, so 
it was almost about you know re re galvanizing us to, to I mean, when the, the, the whether it's the next variant or another wave or whatever but there's a bit of just right okay so it, it's, this hasn't gone away yet um we 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 were also developing all the time so you know, there were lots of successes along the way you know the the scale up the testing program and being able to do, start doing you know population level testing was just extraordinary vaccination program and the rollout of that and just the i suppose the the the, you know, the, the delight with which people were coming in to get their get their vaccines. So there were lots and lots of highs along the way that we were building towards, and then we get over the next next hurdle. Um, and and I, so I think you know everybody genuinely was really keen just to 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 do whatever they they could. Since since we've been starting to come out of COVID, um, and COVID hasn't gone away completely, so let's not forget that. But but since we've been trying to move back more to business as usual. It's it's more complicated. Life is more complicated because the we start to get back into having competing priorities. We're trying to deal with a backlog, huge backlogs in some cases. We're trying to remobilize services at the same time as we have to acknowledge that lots of staff are, are tired um, and have been at this for a while. And the pressures through our emergency and unscheduled care departments have been intense almost relentlessly, whether it's it's winter or summer. So, and again, I think for a lot of that has to be about. I, mean, I spend a lot, a lot of time out talking to to staff on the front line, um, and I think what people need is to hear some of the good news stories because there is lots of brilliant work going on. It's easy for us to get ourselves into a bit of a downward spiral, but let's just remember as a as a health and social care service, we still provide really excellent care to um, hundreds and thousands of people every day. Um, and 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 then what I was talking about earlier that what does the future look like? Um, how do we shift towards being more preventative in our approaches? And how do we harness the best that technology can can give us um, to make take advantage of the opportunities to move lots of care closer to people's homes to be able to do more in the community um, and to be able to then make sure that we're consolidating those really really high level acute services um, in, a, in 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 the places where where you know we can make sure we've got the very best of of, of people and capacity consolidated around that. We wanted to talk a little bit about combining work across various entities. You've sort of mentioned it a little bit um, and you mentioned as well that that was a bit of a steep learning curve too. So from those experiences kind of going forward, I suppose it's the question, right? Like if you were to do it again, knowing what you know now, would you do anything differently? Um, probably more talking about that working across entities yeah. piece as opposed to the whole piece in general. Yeah. Okay. So what have I learned through all of that? I think that I think that um, never assume that you know what's important to another another person in another organisation. Don't make assumptions around how they're going to behave or how they how they're going to respond. Uh, take the time to actually get to know the people and the individuals. Understand uh, what's important in terms of what they're trying to achieve. Um, and and actually, at the end of the day, it all boils down to relationships. It all boils down to having uh, relationships where you can have the difficult conversations, where you can challenge each other, where you can be really honest about what some of the issues are, but where you can then sort of come back to um, a relationship that's fundamentally uh, very solid underneath that. 
Um, so there are, I can look back and think, do you know what? I should have spent a bit more time understanding where that person was coming from. So they weren't being difficult to be difficult. <laughs> a genuine perspective. And diversity is really important in all of this. It's important that we've got people who do challenge the way in which we we think and that, that cause us to just sort of pause uh, and, and think about how we're doing things. I think that particularly during some of the early days in the vaccination programmes, it was so important to have voices from um, communities who don't engage with vaccination programmes sometimes to be giving us that expert advice around and that lived experience about what would make it easier for those communities to engage with engage with vaccination. So listen to lots of voices, take the time to build relationships. That was tricky as well. I mean, I, I love the fact that we get to meet people in 3D now because... Um, it is so much easier to build those relationships in person, one-to-one, in a room, over a coffee uh, or, or whatever. Um, but it's not impossible on a screen. It's actually not impossible. And I think part of that is to just remember that you are all human beings, um, that everybody's doing this job, but also carrying their own baggage of their concerns about what's happening, particularly in the early days of the pandemic, you know, what's happening with them, with their families. Um, and a sense of humour really helps as well. You know, what? stay calm and, and laugh a bit. I love that. <laughs> I feel like all of those things you said are totally transferable, right, across all different walks of work in working environments. Um, we are we're very much a hybrid situation with where we are, and that's it works great. I mean, I'm two hours away from where the office is, yeah. so that's fine. I come down, you know, every month or so. Have you seen a shift in that whole hybrid approach to working and and what has that shift looked like within the environment that you're in? Yeah, I I mean, I have to say that uh, as we went into this pandemic, Scottish government's technology wasn't probably in the best place uh, to deal with that. And in fact, in my in my my first role as um, uh, Director of Digital Transformation, one of the first things we did was to um, help the Health and Social Care Directorate to piggyback on the NHS tenancy for Microsoft 365 so that we were able to use Teams to communicate, speak with, meet with um, all those partners across um, health boards and, and local government um, and our, our health and social care partnerships. Um uh, so, so, so that was great. And I think that uh, for all organisations that I think uh, opened our eyes a bit to what was possible. So, you know, the old video conferencing had been a bit clunky in the past, but all of a sudden we were learning how to use teams in, in our case, but learning how to use that, um, uh, figuring out how we could make it work and make it work really well for everybody who was on the, on the call. I think what was noticeable was when everybody was working remotely, we didn't get those same sort of slight differences between the people who are in the room and the people who are not in the room. As we go into more hybrid working, then I think it's really important that we're still, certainly the way we deal with it is most people who are in the room will also be on, 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 on screen as well. Um, but there's, so there's been some enormous benefits. Um, you know, you talk about living two hours away from your own office. So for Scottish government, being able to recruit people from um, our more remote and island communities and have them work in exactly the same capacity uh, as everybody else has, has been brilliant. And, and again, that's about 
hearing the voices um, who can make a difference. You know, when you work in a government that's providing the providing policy advice to ministers, it's really important that we understand the impact of that on our remote and rural communities as well as, uh, you know, j- just thinking about the central belt, which we can slip into sometimes. So I think there's been huge advantages. Um, I also think that face-to-face is still really important. And um, I think that that's important, as I've already said, around relationships. I also worry a bit that for um, younger folk coming into the workplace, um, maybe for the first time, I know that I have learned so much from watching how other people do things, and to what, and, and that's you know watching them when they're off camera. <laughs> it's yes. not it's not just about that you know person on a screen, um, and so I think I, I think it's really important that we find ways in which people are able to work remotely. Um, but also able to engage with their teams uh, face to face and to start to and, and to have that opportunity just to learn from the way in which you watch other people doing things. I think mm. that we, we mustn't lose that. Yeah, I mean, I remember back to when I was in a graduate position and you don't have a clue what you're doing, right? You walk in for the first day and you think, oh, where am I going to sit? What, what am I doing for lunch? All this stuff. A few years pass and then you start seeing new people come in and you think, oh, I was once in that that position. Um, something that we're really trying to do is have a presence in the office for graduates, more specifically for senior managers to come in and be there. You said yourself, you learn so much from just being in the same environment as them. Um, do you think there's a sort of expectation that is pushed hard enough on people that are maybe in that more sort of middle management, senior management position to help the younger new graduates or fresh out of school people coming through? Do you think we're pushing that hard enough in general? So I I don't know. I find that quite a difficult one to answer, actually. I, I think it's something we must not be complacent about. So we must not ever think that having people, whether they're out of school, out of university, out of college, whatever, having them online all the time is an acceptable way of, of them working. I, I, I don't think it is. I think that we need to think about what it, what it is that makes you that whole sort of rounded person um, able to give of your best, but also able to get the benefit from all the people that you're working with. And so I think I think that, you know, the, the allocation of specific times, whether it's team days, whether it's, you know, coming in for team meetings, I think it's really important that everybody throughout um, a, a system supports that. I suppose I want to talk about the whole gaining respect, gaining trust from the other leaders within the other entities that you were working with. Um, how did you find that whole situation of you're leading your department they're leading theirs. We all have to come together. Being a woman as well, has that had any influence on that? Um, and and kind of how did you tackle that initially? Um, I'm probably more focusing on the being a woman piece as much as we don't like to. Let's it's obvious, you know. Like, <laughs> let's talk about it because people want to know. That must have been incredibly hard. Um, were you the only woman in the room? I hope not. <laughs> no, no, no. And in fact, I think that you know gender balance across. Yeah 
health, uh, local government, health and social care partnerships is, is is pretty good. I think it's one of the things that we can be we can be really proud of. That's not to say that we don't have challenges in in other areas in relation to our diversity, but we do we do pretty pretty well on gender balance. So it would be very unusual for me to be the only woman in the room or on the screen. Probably more usual for the to be a small number of men. Yeah. Um, uh, Maybe maybe don't don't feel outnumbered. So, I, I I think that, but I think the whole piece around um, respect and trust um, is 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 really about some of it's about the job that you do, about being consistent, about holding to values. Um, even when it gets tough, I suppose one of the things I've learned is you know just take a deep breath and stay calm. It's really particularly when um, things can get a bit fraught. Um, just stay calm. Um, and, and keep keep working through things. Um, do the best job that you possibly can. Support your colleagues. Uh, that part of that understanding where people are coming from is is, is being able to to support them as well. Um, and you know there are going to be there are going to be difficult conversations, and you just need to be prepared to have those um, to understand when people are under pressure and maybe you know responding in a in a way that they wouldn't they wouldn't normally, um, and to go with that a little bit. But um, as I said, you know I I work with a I work with a fabulous team, um, and I'm, I'm part of. You know, I, Part of my job is to let them get on with what they do and to make sure that they are able to be the best that they can be because a lot of them are, you know, experts in their own fields and they just need to have the space um, and the, you know, the, the authority just, just to get on with, with, with doing doing what they do and have me get out of their way actually. <laughs> it's so funny that you literally said the line get out their way. Um, I was reading something this morning on the train down and it was talking about um, effective leadership, how people can become a better leader and that whole standoff approach literally getting out of the way of others, giving them the opportunity to just get on with it and yeah. try, maybe fail, but do it quickly and then try again. other little tidbits of leadership stuff that you think kind of you've learned over the however many years you've been doing what you've been doing any sort of reflections thinking back and saying okay you know what that actually works or actually no that didn't work that was a shouldn't have done that um maybe they shouldn't have done that so what interesting to start <laughs> I, I I I guess that when I've um, reflected on things that I've done or said and thought mm, probably shouldn't have done that it's it's been when I've responded in the heat of the moment, okay. mm-hmm. um, and and so my whole thing about take a deep breath, stay calm um, is partly give yourself your head a bit of time to process, and then decide whether you do need to do something about that or or or, or not. And and actually, I don't think it's helpful if everybody starts getting very responsive in spaces because it just tends to inflame a situation rather than actually um, calm it down and reach a reach a resolution. Um, I do think that it's all about relationships and um, you are never going to, you're never going to get on brilliantly with absolutely everybody you're working with. But um, I think at the very least you can establish a a respectful, um, open relationship with people. Um, And yeah, as I've said, sense of humour, I think is really important. It's really important that it, that work isn't just about the job that we've got to get done, but it's also about 
you know, a bit of understanding what's going on in other people's lives, people being able to, you know, WhatsApp's lines where we just share jokes, actually. Oh, share jokes, share, you know, nonsense, trivia, trivia about what's going on in people's lives um, can slightly take the piss out of each other uh, and, and, and have a laugh. I mean, that, you know, that is really, it's really important that work isn't just about the serious stuff all the time because some of the stuff we've had to deal with over the last couple of years is pretty ridiculous. A minute ago, you talked a bit around your punk phase. <laughs> it wasn't a phase. We it's a lifestyle choice. Oh, it's even better. We can't <laughs> just let that go. I want to know more. Talk to us a bit more about that time in your life. I'm assuming it was kind of around the university time, living life, enjoying yourself before things got more serious. Yeah. <laughs> what yeah. was life like at that time? Yeah. So I, um, uh, yeah, I, I, I grew up in Yorkshire. I went to university in London because. I was so desperate to go to a big city um, and and not be in the sticks any longer. Uh, and um, I, I, many of my friends were in the same place as well. So it ended up I ended up living in uh, a high rise flat um, down in Peckham, uh, just off the Old Kent Road, actually North Peckham, uh, in with with a bunch of people who uh, had been my friends um, from from school days and who are still my friends. Um, so we'd lived in this sort of fairly chaotic flat um we and we used to go out and see a lot of gigs we used to um we used to go out partying quite a lot um and we still do uh so that's the the core of um my I have a group of uh, my best female friends there are six of us in total uh we have all known each other for about 40 years um a bit more in some cases <laughs> uh and yeah we we still we try and meet up we're all over the country but we try and meet up uh at least twice a year um and uh my best friend Jackie and I yeah we we're sort of pretty unreconstructed old punks really in fact we we were down at the Albert Hall to see Killing Joke in in February which was <laughs> Which was good fun. Um, so yeah, we like our like our old music, um, but yeah, we can also do some modern stuff as well. Um, so yeah, I'm 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 up for a party, and I, I love dancing as well. Amazing! Who would have thought? Like the role that you have now, that you have this other side to you. It's so cool. Um, I seriously did have a bit of a mahi. Feel like at we one need point. photographic yeah. evidence. Of this. <laughs> so cool. Um, Yorkshire is obviously a small, you probably were from a small town, right? Where you, okay. And then you moved to London. Yeah. I did the same. I grew up in Stonehaven, tiny little town on the, on the northeast coast of Scotland, obviously. And then I moved to London after uni. Um, similar, not quite a punk phase like you, but definitely similar, similar chaotic situation. Looking back on London, that life is totally different to the life you have right now, yeah. right? I sometimes think, oh, would I do it again? I absolutely would for the life experience, maybe not for my bank balance, um, <laughs> but the life experience totally outweighs that. What are your thoughts on on that time that you spent the big city? So I loved I loved being in London. I was in I was, I was at university in London. I did my training with KPMG in London. I, I I so I was there I think seven years in total, and 
and I, and I loved it. It, it. it is, I mean, it was then, even more so now, a very expensive city to live in. Uh, and I think what you know, what finally got to me was just the, although there is so much there that you can do, A, being able to afford to do it and B, having the time to travel to mm. do it. So so getting across London and, um, you know, just all, all, all of that. Uh, I love going back to London. I really get, love going back and spending time there with friends. Um, but I, I live in Edinburgh now. I lived in Edinburgh for a Quite a long time, and it's, you know, Edinburgh is a fabulous. Well, the festivals on at the moment, so yeah. it's it's absolutely buzzing. Yeah. Um, but uh, I I think Edinburgh has got that fabulous combination of being, a, you know, a city with lots going on, but it's also really easy to get into the countryside. Do you live in the countryside or are you in the uh, city? No, I'm in the middle of the city. Amazing. Yeah. Confirmed so city liver. Wow. <laughs> I bet like the month of August, generally, we all know how crazy but also amazing Edinburgh is. By the time it gets to the end of the month, we're quite happy usually. <laughs> yeah, well, or, or just quite exhausted. Yeah, quite exhausted. <laughs> quite exhausted. Have you been to any of the Fringe shows yet? Have you, are you uh, planning to go to anything? I went to, um, just completely randomly, I went to a, a sort of acrobatic oh, thing. Cool. Um, uh, my niece was staying at the weekend, so we took her to see that. And it was, I think it's called Seven Fingers or some Seven Fingers Dual Reality. That's G-U-E-L. And it's um, it's loosely based around a sort of Romeo-Juliet Romeo story. So you get you're either a member of the blue team or the red team when you go in but some amazing acrobatics oh, really cool. really good I always really love good. a recommendation because there's so much choice right yeah. like the amount of shows that are on I'm going um, to see Grace Campbell this coming weekend wow. so I saw her at the festival last nice. last year and I uh, thought she was really good I think um, we increased the age of average age of the the audience quite a bit but <laughs> she's very funny I love it and it's so great to hear that there's so many other things going on in your life outside of the work thing I appreciate with what you do it does take up so much time you mentioned earlier it's really hard to switch off can you try and switch off? What do you do to kind of manage this whole, they talk work-life balance, right? I'm not sure yeah. it's actually a thing. I think everyone, again, has their own interpretation of it. What are your thoughts on that? So so I I do, I love the job that I do. So it's it's not, you know, it's not a sort of thing that's niggling away yeah. at me. Um, it, and it is high pressure and it's and it's pretty, pretty full on and constant. But equally, you know, I do recognise that I need to, I need some downtime from all of that. Um, I'm lucky I've got hugely supportive family and friends. Um, I've already talked about, you know, I like to be out. I like, although I love the city, I do like to be able to get out as well. And, you know, I, I have a dog. He's he's quite old now, so he's not, he's 15. So wow. <laughs> he's not quite as energetic as he used to be. Um, but um, the other thing that just happened quite recently was that um, 14 years ago, I put my name down for an allotment in Edinburgh. Oh, amazing. And in, in January, um, we got an allotment. So <laughs> Hold on. Are you saying that it took 14 it years? It took 14 years, yeah. I tell you. God, Edinburgh, come on. Allot allotments are in demand. Yeah. So, so yeah. So, wow. so, we've now got this plot of land um, and digging is very therapeutic. I like digging. Um, I've never really grown any vegetables before, so it's all a bit random. I get very excited when things grow. Um, and equally things, I plant things and something eats them all. Um, oh. So that just sort of happens too. Um, I've got sweet corn at the moment, which I'm not entirely, I, I mean, I'm sure it won't actually turn, but it looks like sweet corn so far. 
Um, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. I'm, I'm almost scared to talk about it, but I'm not sure it's going to ripen given that we're not having brilliant weather at the moment. But you know, in all seriousness, being able to go and spend an hour, two hours just um, up in the allotments where there's lots of wildlife and birds and butterflies. Oh, and a fox um, that came and said hello to me the other day. And it's great. And it does, it completely clears your head of, of, of everything else. Um, so, so so those sort of things, seeing friends, um, it's really important to get that, that sort of balance in your life as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like throughout your whole career, you've probably had elements of all of that. Do you think now, just looking at the sort of time you've spent working, the role that you're in, looking back on it all, is it worth it? Is all of this up and down, London for however long, training, doing this, working, doing that, taking a development opportunity. Is it all worth it? Yeah. Yeah. I would I would miss this if I wasn't if I wasn't yeah. doing it, I would I would miss this. Retirement um, is not on the horizon anytime. So not 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 immediately. As I've said, I do recognise that nobody I think can live the do this sort of job at, at you know with a pace and intensity forever so I'm not planning on being here forever but um, uh, I think you know that we're good for the next few years hopefully anyway Amazing. so good Caroline thank you so much we've got through so many great topics and I'm really excited for everyone to hear our conversation so thank you thank you very much for having me